the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Lee Johnson, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Jason Reed. And today, we are talking about what sets everyone's pants on fire. And no, I'm not talking about Pedro Pascal. I am talking about lying. (laughs) But before we do that, we are going to go around the horn here and get some drink orders and some rants and raves from everybody. So, Rick, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to stick with my winter classic, a Manhattan with rye, please. This week, I'm raving about the Mike Birbiglia special, The Old Man and the Pool. I love Mike Birbiglia, and I think he's one of the most interesting comedians around today. He does an hour that is one story, but it's punctuated and it's really funny. And also, I have to admit, I was moved at various times during this. So check it out. The Old Man in the Pool. It's on Netflix. Mike Birbiglia. Jason, what about you? So I'll have a dark and stormy. And I am going to rave about the novella Feed Them Silence by Lee Mandelo. This is another in a small genre of animal-human interface science fiction. It's about a woman who gets a grant in the not-too-distant future to merge her consciousness to that of a wolf. And what happens when one social animal meets another social animal It's an academic novel, it's a sci-fi novel, it's also about a marriage falling apart, and it's got a lot of wolves in it. (laughs) Interesting combination. So Lee, what are you having, what are you ranting or raving about? Today I'm going to have a fresquila, that's fresca and tequila, it's one of my favorite drinks. And I am raving about all of those actors and actresses that show up in movies and you're like, oh hell yeah, I love that person. I think these are called character actors. I'm not really sure what the definition of a character actor is, but I'm thinking about people like Ben Mendelsohn, Delroy Lindo, Walter Goggins, and among the women, Margot Martindale, Loretta Devine. They don't get enough credit. So shout out to all of the character actors for keeping those movies great. All right. So Rick, I know we're talking about lying today. How are we going to talk about it? So George Costanza from Seinfeld once made what I think is an interesting philosophical claim. It's not a lie if you believe it. (laughs) It's true in one way and it's false in another way. It really does seem wrong that we would claim that someone lied on accident. So intention, and then that would mean knowing what you are saying is not true, seems to be part of what it is to lie. But the if-you-believe-it part seems kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. (laughs) It's then even more difficult to weigh the morality of lying. Immanuel Kant famously argued that I have a duty to tell the truth in all cases, no matter what the consequences of my telling the truth might be. So if I'm aiding a friend by sheltering them from an abusive partner, when that partner knocks on the door and asks me if my friend is inside, do I have to tell the truth? And what about a friend who asks you if you like their new tattoo? (laughs) Finally, what happens to lying in an age, I think like ours, when the truth counts for so little? Are we in the awkward position now of hoping for an age to come in which we can all lie again? So, Rick, I'm glad that you opened by pointing out how important it is that intention be a part of lying. I tend to agree with what you seem to say there, which is that if you lie and you don't know that you're lying, that's not a lie. That's a mistake or an error or something like that. As I tell my students all the time, when you're taking a math exam and your professor is grading it and you get questions wrong, he's not sitting there like, liar, liar, liar. (laughs) You know. So the fact that something is untrue doesn't necessarily make it a lie. 
Why do you think that people are so inclined to ally those two things? Why do you think that so many people want to make just saying something untrue the same as a lie? I hesitated from saying, Lee, on the one hand, on the other (laughs) in my introduction, but it's part of the on the one hand, on the other of lying. Oh, so many hands. (laughs) Because whether the thing you say is true or false is important. I think what you're pointing out, Lee, is saying something that's false in and of itself can't count as a lie because that would mean, as you said, every mistake would count as a lie. And so on a math exam, I'm doing my calculations and I say two plus two equals five. That doesn't count as a lie. It seems to count as a mistake. And so it's an ambiguous thing here because on the one hand, the truth content of what is said seems to be relevant. Mm -hmm. I can't lie by telling the truth, or maybe I can. But on the other hand, it doesn't tell the entire story. And there, I think we have to go back to intention. Is part of the issue that the intention has to be an intention to deceive? Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about your Costanza thesis that you brought up, <laughs> and I was remembering that, you know, a long time ago, I had the makings of a great story. And the story was, this is what happened when I was a kid, that we were on vacation at a summer place on the beach, and we went to see Jaws 2 at the drive-in. And my uncle bet us that we would not go into the water after seeing Jaws 2 at the Mm drive-in. We went in, and he kept saying we were not in long enough. Now, what makes this a story is it turns out that the beach had been closed because of a warning about sharks. Because (laughs) the fishermen who were fishing for mackerel were coming very close to shore. The mackerel schools were coming close to shore, and the sharks were following them. And so it turned out that I was in the water at the same time that there was a warning Now, here's where the lie comes in. That day, a woman did get bit on the beach by a shark. In the water. Not on the beach, but in the water by a shark. (laughs) Land shark. Definitely a lie. I remember telling the story at one point and someone saying, did you see it? Did I see the woman get bit? Mm. And I said, yes. I was lying, but I just felt like it would really make my story so much better if I had that (laughs) moment in it. And then it became a lie that I believed, because then I retold the story again and again, and eventually my memory of seeing the coverage of the woman getting bit on the news that night, and my time being in the water kind of merged, and it took Mm -hmm. a while for me to remember... And I think talking to my brother, like, no, we didn't see that happen. (laughs) But for a brief period, it was the lie I believed. But it also wasn't meant to deceive anyone. I just really liked the irony of this bet going into the water and it turning out I went into the water on exactly the wrong day to go in the water. It just made the story so much better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my mother's mother was from Ireland. She died when my mom was 13 years old. But all of her relatives, like I think there were 11 of them, brothers and sisters, came to the United States except for her brother, my Uncle Patty. My Uncle Patty apparently was an amazing storyteller. And at some points, he would be telling a story, and one of his siblings would say, ah, Patty, you're making it up. That's a lie. And his response was that there's an Irish theory of truth. (laughs) Something is true if it makes for a good narrative. If it makes for a good story, then it's true. And so, Jason, I think that in your story, you didn't lie. I think it made for a good story, and so it was true in the Irish sense. I mean, I like this embellishment theory of lying, but I'm not sure that that really gets to what's dangerous about the Costanza theory of lying. I think I might agree that if you believe it's true, then it's not a lie. Because I do think that the intent to deceive is part of lying. But I believe it's true is different than I want it to be true. And Mm -hmm. I do believe that a lot of times today, people will say something that they know is untrue. They want it to be true. They know it's untrue. And they think that it's not a lie because they want it to be true. (laughs) Well, that's what I was referring to as the get out of jail free card part of the Costanza thesis. Namely that I say I believe it's true when really all I mean is that I want it to be true. But then here comes the difficulty because... Once we turn to intention, we're getting into an area that analytic philosophers become really interested in, namely that in propositions, right? I saw the woman get eaten by a shark. 
on the one hand, there's something like the truth content of the preposition, but then there's all sorts of other elements that can come in, like, do I believe it? Do I want it to be true? And these other components, especially when they're internal, one might even say psychological states, they become way more difficult to adjudicate than just the simple truth content of what you're Mm -hmm. saying. And so then the very question of determining whether something's a lie becomes a really messy business. Yeah, I think another side of that as well is when the truth content of the proposition isn't known or can't be known. Mm. So I think, for example, about this narrative that the right keeps telling about the deep state. Right. Okay, it's possible there's a deep state and they're (laughs) drinking blood and trafficking children and all of these things. I mean, nobody (laughs) knows, I suppose. You know, it's something that even if it were true, nobody would know it. That's kind of part of the definition of what a deep state is. But I do believe that when Marjorie Taylor Greene keeps pushing this narrative that she's lying. Mm -hmm. I don't think that she believes it's true. And I think somewhere she knows it's not true. But there already, like you say, I think she knows it's not true. Right. We're in this murky business. And Mm -hmm. I think the New York Times during the Trump administration had a big problem of deciding when to say that Trump lied and when he didn't lie because like judging someone's internal relation to what it is they're saying is really, really difficult. But I think in the case of both Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene, there is the intention to deceive there, Mm -hmm. to lead people astray, to be like, hey, look at this squirrel. (laughs) It reminds me of a video that went viral a long time ago of a person saying that you should never, ever get bogged down in calling someone a racist. You should say that what they said was racist. And I feel like it's the same sort of problem, right? Because you're never going to know in someone's heart of heart what they feel or believe. It's better to talk about the effects of what it is they have said or done, not their internal states. And the same thing could be said here about lying. Because when it comes to the politics of Taylor Greene and others, there's obviously in the whole world of all these conspiracy theories, there are true believers definitely within this who really believe that there is a deep state and people are bathing in the blood of children or whatever. And there are people who are saying that because they know it works for them. But at a certain point, it seems like it's not that relevant to sort out who the true believers and who the deceivers are. And it's really more of a matter of what they are doing by propagating these sort of statements. The effect matters more than the intention in this case. But here's the weird thing about that very example. If it were true that there is a deep state then it becomes more difficult to pick out the liars from the true believers because the thing they're both claiming turns out to be true. And now we're in the awkward position of you could lie even about something that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you couldn't lie by telling the truth. Mm, No, that's what you just said. (laughs) Yeah. Huh. Let's take your example, Lee, of Marjorie Taylor Greene. When she goes around making propositions that she says are true, she hasn't really investigated in the least. Like, she hasn't even done the minimal amount of investigating to see whether there's reason for one to think this, whether there's evidence that these are true. And so then what I'm wondering is, is the problem here that she's lying, or is the problem a different failure, namely that she to use a legal term, hasn't done due diligence. And so she has no business claiming one thing or another. I would call it something like epistemic culpability. Mm -hmm. You should have gotten the knowledge. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, this is how I think about flat earthers. Right. Read a book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the flat earthers are an interesting example because they are often relying on immediate experience, right? Immediate experience, the sun rises, the sun sets. I don't see the curvature of the earth in my day-to-day life. Everything I experience seems to confirm that the earth is flat. And I think that epistemic principle applies to a lot of conspiracy theories. You know, it looks to me like COVID precautions are making my life less fun and prohibiting me doing the things that I want to do. That must be the reason that they exist. Mm. This is what Spinoza would call the first kind of knowledge, right? The way something affects you is taken for what it supposedly is. And as you were saying about the epistemic due diligence, you have to move beyond simply how something affects you and take a broader view of what it 
actually is. Like, just because something pissed you off doesn't mean it was engineered to piss you off. I mean, just because seeing Taylor Swift at a football game <laughs> angers up your blood doesn't mean she's there to anger up your blood. <laughs> yeah, I think now we're getting into the area of lies, damned lies, and statistics, because statistics in that was supposed to refer to any sort of thing that might justify what you're saying or might appear to justify what you're saying. And I do think that one of the problems with conspiracy theorists is that they give the appearance of having done their epistemic due diligence, right? They did their research. Mm -hmm. You know, they've read the whole thread of that Facebook post or they watched that (laughs) YouTube video. Even with COVID, you know, you could find statistics to support a lot of different truths about COVID and the broader ramifications of COVID. So, yeah, I mean, now we're getting into a more difficult area, and I don't want us to start talking about relativism. Like, is there any truth at all? Because I want us to get back to the lying thing. But I do agree there does seem to be a kind of epistemic responsibility, the presumption that when I say that something is true, that I believe it's true, even if I may be mistaken. And so when I say something that I know is not true, or if I say something that is intended to deceive you, that seems to qualify as a lie for me. Lee, you earlier made the distinction between believing something and wanting it to be true. But Jason, now with your raising the ways in which things affect me, I think you're also showing that it's very easy for my wanting it to be true to actually shade into my believing that it is true. And that affect of wanting can cause another affect, namely the believing. And so I could very easily move from the wanting it to be true to believing it's true. And maybe this goes back to your story that you wanted it to be true because it made a good story. And then all of a sudden, over time, you're now believing that it's true. Right. In which case, you're no longer lying. Hmm. And that's the problem with the Costanza thesis. Right. And the other problem with the Costanza thesis is that we're often lying to ourselves in all kinds of little ways that we sometimes tend to forget. I mean, we might leave an event with our account of what happened. And in our account, we were always in the right. We always said the smartest and coolest things and everyone else was annoying people. And that's how we recall it confusing what happened and how we felt about things. And then afterwards, you know, we cannot tell the truth. I mean, this is something that comes up a lot in police eyewitness testimony. This is why there's that little measuring tape of where six foot is at the door of most convenience stores so that they can at least hope when the person who robbed the place is leaving the convenience store, the person will notice where their head stands on the measuring tape because it's been proven again and again that people, when something happens, it's frightening especially, they completely distort everything they saw and they'll think the person must have been huge because he was really scary and what you're pointing out there is that the way i'm affected by something you mentioned fear for example is way stronger than my being affected by it through sensation and so what i felt now turns into what it was right And I think that that is different than lying to yourself. Mm. So I have a little bit of a bone to pick about this phrase, lying to yourself, because, (laughs) you know, Jean-Paul Sartre describes bad faith as a lie to oneself. And I wish he hadn't, because what he's describing there is not the same thing as lying to someone else. So the phenomenon of lying to someone else is that I have the truth, you want it, right? And instead of giving you the truth... I put this thing in between me and you, namely the lie, that effectively veils the truth Mm. that I have. And so I deceive and you are the deceived. You can't do that to yourself. You can't both be the one who knows the truth and the one who doesn't know the truth. You can't both be the deceiver and the deceived. Mm. There's only one of you in there. (laughs) There's a lot of ways in which we restructure and reform our memories in ways that are more palatable to us for a number of reasons, some of them nefarious and some of them not at all. But that's still not the same thing as lying to yourself. So when you say, when both of you say that our affective experience of something often becomes the truth of what it was, I don't think that that's a lie to myself. If I say that guy who robbed the store was 6'5", because I was scared, 
it doesn't mean that I know he was actually only 5'10", right. but I'm saying that he was 6'5", because I was scared. Mm-hmm. It means that the affect of my fear has molded the truth of what I believe I actually experienced in that moment. Now, when I say to you, let's go out for drinks tonight, but I can only stay for one, I know I'm not going to only stay for one. <laughs> That's not a lie to myself. That's a lie to you, but it's not a lie to myself. Right. To yourself, it's stating out loud an aspiration. Yes. Yeah. In yeah. fact, that. It's a bad faith. That's what Sartre means by bad faith. As a matter of fact, he says, in bad faith, we have to know the truth all the better in order to lie about it. Hmm. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance... You can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. I think one of the reasons why lying is philosophically interesting is not just because of questions about knowledge that it brings and then the other, I don't know what to call them, states of consciousness or states of mind that go along with it. And so it seems like the truth content is relevant, but it has to be more than the truth content. There has to be the intent to deceive. But the other complication is a moral complication. Mm -hmm. That is... Is it wrong to lie? We probably could begin best with this short little essay that Kant wrote in relation to an essay he read, where the author of the essay he read is claiming that lying actually, this is my paraphrase, not the author's original phrasing, lying is lubrication for our social and political fabric, (laughs) and basically that we need to lie in some cases. Kant takes this on, I'll just shorten the argument, he basically argues that it is never morally right to lie, and one of his arguments, probably his main argument, is if I claim that it is morally okay to lie, then I remove the foundations for all sorts of cases in which truth-telling is necessary, contracts, oaths, promises, even setting a date, I'll be there at 9 a.m., all sorts of things become impossible. And therefore, to use Kant's phrasing, it's impossible for me to will lying in particular circumstances as a universal moral law, because it would undercut the very foundation of morality itself. Now, this opens many awkward questions, and I raised one in my introduction. So I'm helping out a friend who has an abusive partner. The abusive partner comes to my house and says, are they in there? I think I would say, no, they're not. You need to go home. Therefore, I would be lying. And Kant would say, that's immoral. So I think there are a lot of ambiguities surrounding this issue of lying. And I say this as someone who normally is a Kantian. I always think that this is a little bit of an unfair attribution to Kant to say that Kant would say, for example, you should tell the abusive partner that the person that they're looking for is there. I don't think that he would say that, but that's a more complicated thing, which we'll get to in a second. But I want to get to what his actual argument was in this scenario that you've set up. So Kant says, your friend comes over to your house and he says, my boyfriend's looking for me. He's abusive. I'm scared. Can I come in? You're like, yeah, come on in. And then a few minutes later, the boyfriend comes to the house and he says, is my partner here? And you say, no, he went that way down the street. That's a lie. That's obviously a lie. You know that the partner's in there. And you're going to say, I have a moral right to do that because 
it's going to save my friend from being harmed. Right. Kant would say, let's say that abusive boyfriend comes to the door and he says, is my partner here? And you say, no, he went that way. But while you're at the door, the partner hears that his abusive partner is at the door and runs out the back door and goes that way. Right. Right. So you've effectively sent the abuser straight to his victim and he gets harmed, you know, and then we would say, well, are you morally responsible for that? And most people would say, no, I didn't know the guy ran out the back door. There's no way I could have known that. Kant's argument about this whole thing is that you can't take responsibility for things when they turn out well and not take responsibility for things when they turn out poorly. If your moral argument is that the lie is morally justified on the basis of its consequences, then you have to take responsibility for those consequences however they turn out. And I think most people would say, that's ridiculous. How could I possibly have known that the guy was going to run out the back of the house? And that's ultimately the argument of deontology, right? Is that, Uh of course, nobody can know the consequences of their actions. Nobody can know the future. And so you cannot base morality on a kind of consequentialist reasoning. Now, that I completely agree with. Completely agree with. I think that there are many ways that you could say, absolutely, I would lie to the guy, but I would not then turn around and raise my children, one ought to lie. I would not say that lying is the morally right thing to do. I would say I lied here for non-moral reasons, for prudential reasons. Or I might say I was in a conflict of duties here. I had a duty to tell the truth, but I also had a duty to respect the humanity of the person that I was sheltering. And I had to choose one or the other. And that meant I had to do one moral thing and one immoral thing. But that doesn't make lying morally right. So this is probably the situation in which I'm the least closeted in my Kantianism. I think that he's absolutely right about this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best possible defense of Kant there. And I just want to add that a lot of people justify lying on consequentialist grounds, right? Like if you do something wrong, let's say you cheat on a partner or whatever, people will lie because they think that it'll protect them, that'll harm them if they know the truth, that the lying sort of negates the action. It's all based on the consequences. But just like the Kantian example, the problem with those consequences is that the lie only makes the harm all the greater. Because then you've both wronged someone and betraying their trust, and you've lied to them about it, and now they've found out. Kant is really making an argument against consequentialism in ethics, and many lies are justified based on consequences, right? Like, if someone knows that I think their tattoo is ridiculous, that's going to hurt their feelings, so I'm going to lie. But then later they might find out you lied about it, and that's all the worse. I agree that the justification of the morality of my action based on consequences is problematic in all sorts of ways. And I think, Lee, you put your finger on it. The main reason is because we are finite beings. And I think Hannah Arendt is really good on this. We can't possibly trace out the causal story that our actions are going to then have as my actions ripple out through the world and come back to me. Hannah Arendt takes as a consequence of this that that's why we need forgiveness and we need to forgive one another. That's an interesting side note. But I wonder if there aren't other justifications for the morality and not just the mere prudence of lying at least in certain circumstances. All the while, I understand that the moment I say in certain circumstances, Kant is always going to say, then you're never talking about morality. You're always talking about prudence. Right. And I think there's where I start worrying a little bit about Kant. On my reading of Kant, there can be no conflict of duties. That is, if two duties come into conflict, it's only an apparent conflict. I only will ever have one of those two duties, or maybe none, but there can't ever be a conflict of duty precisely because a duty is consequent upon someone else's right, and that right follows from the universal moral law. So no two duties could ever come into conflict. I don't I don't follow that at all. So the question would be, what is a duty? And One of Kant's answers that he gives in the metaphysics of morals, not the groundwork, but the metaphysics of morals, is I have a duty because someone else has a right. My duty is in relation to that right. And so I have a duty, for example, to protect you because you have a right to life. 
if you didn't have that right, then I would have no duty to protect you. Now, why do you have a right to life? This follows directly from the universal moral law that is the categorical imperative. If I didn't presuppose that, I can't universalize that as a maxim for all. And so there is a consequence from universal moral law to right and from right to duty. Therefore, two duties can't come into conflict because that would mean that two things which follow from the categorical imperative are actually opposed to one another. Well, I suppose in response to that, I would just say what you said earlier. We are finite beings in a finite world, and we are yeah. often going to be placed in situations in which we have duties, absolute duties, that choosing one means not choosing the other. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. But that's a conflict of duties. But I think that's a moment where you and I break from Kant. Hmm. Because the concrete situation which I find myself, including my own embodiment, you know, my gender, my race, my class, like none of those pertain to having a duty at all and having a right at all, and therefore ought to be irrelevant. And yet, I think they're precisely relevant in adjudicating whether something is right or wrong. Here, I think Kant is a little bit too strict in his distinction between what is moral and what is merely prudent. Okay, I think I'm following what you're saying now. So you would agree that in the scenario that we described where the abuser comes to your door and he's looking for his partner, that that is a conflict of duties. You would agree? Yeah. Yes. I would agree. Okay. Yeah. okay. But I think where you and I disagree, and I think I might more agree with Kant, is that the fact that you have to choose there doesn't mean the duty that you violated now becomes justified. So it is the case that I would lie to the guy at the door, you would lie to the guy at the door, but that doesn't make lying morally right. I think Kant would lie to the guy at the door. I think that he would say, I lied to the guy at the door, lying is still morally wrong. I lied for prudential reasons. I do not have a moral right to lie. I mean, that was the title of this essay that you're talking about that Kant wrote on a supposed right to lie. Well, and let me just point out, the author to whom Kant is responding follows Kant in the relationship between right and duty and he argues that if I have a duty to tell the truth, that means that someone else has a right to the truth, and the author claims no one has a right to the truth. Kant argues that we do have a right to the truth first, but more strongly, he argues the duty is not related to someone else's right to the truth. The duty is related to myself as a moral agent. My only point here is that the move that Kant makes from my saying it was morally right for me to lie in this circumstance is tantamount to me saying, therefore, I have a right to lie. I think there's a whole lot in between there that I don't think I have to necessarily buy his conclusion, even while I insist I was right to lie there. My claim that it was morally right to lie there is not tantamount to a right to lie always, everywhere, for all times. Which would be a moral right to lie. So you're claiming that you have a prudential right to lie, but obviously Kant would say prudential rights are not rights in the same sense, but fine. It still seems to me like you're not really disagreeing with Kant here, that we never have a moral right to lie. Where I think we're disagreeing is I'm not sure what is gained by maintaining that this is prudential and not moral. Why not just say that my lying there was a moral good? I guess what I'm worried about in all of this is for me to say it was morally wrong for me to lie, but I did it for prudential reasons, is tantamount to me saying I sinned, but I did it for good reasons. In that case, why talk about morality in the way we talk about it? Why not just talk about prudence, which I think is the direction that a lot of English moral philosophers will take, that the direction Kant pursues is irrelevant to human life, and the only thing that's relevant is what Kant would call prudence. I mean, I think the short answer to that is prudence is consequentialist, and you can't build a morality on consequentialist reasoning. Prudential decisions are always guessing at what's best. They're not universalizable. They're not rational. They're prudential. So I guess what's lost in Kant just not, you know, giving up the ghosts and saying, all right, fine, everything's prudence. 
what's lost is morality. As Kant understands it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or as a student in one of my early modern classes once put it, all you have to do is tell the person at the door that your friend went down the street loud enough so the person hiding in your house can hear <laughs> That's how you deal with the conflict of duties. I that student. That was the same guy that when he was doing the trolley problem was like, no, but I can untie knots really fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, make the dilemma not a dilemma. That just solves everything. Right. I think we've all had that student. And Lee, as you're constantly pointing out, us men, we're not sending our best team out there. That student is usually a dude. <laughs> Well, actually. (laughs) Here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. Up until now, we've looked at what philosophers call the epistemology of lying, that is how lying is related to knowledge. And we saw there, it can't just be the knowledge itself, but intention has to be involved. Then we moved on to the morality of lying, that it's never moral to lie, even though we should understand that there are cases in which it might be the best thing to do. I want to talk about the politics of lying and the way lying functions politically. This goes back to the essay to which Kant was responding. One of the arguments about lying is that politicians do it all the time, and they do it necessarily. And Kant actually hits on this, but if I have to do something necessarily, I can't have a duty to do its opposite. And so this author, relying on the fact that politicians do it necessarily, allows him to say lying is politically essential. I think a way that we update this is that I hear all the time in bars and in conversations with civilians that... (laughs) Civilians? (laughs) I mean, non-commissioned philosophers. Oh, I thought you meant like people who don't go to bars. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to start saying that. (laughs) So in conversations at bars and with people who aren't philosophers, you hear all the time all the politicians are lying. To give an example that's recently in the headlines, Republicans say they don't want to pass an aid package for Ukraine unless some measures are taken to secure the border. Then a proposal is produced in order to do both. And then the Republicans say, oh, no, we're not going to back that. Then I say to someone, well, they were lying. And the response almost always is all politicians lie all the time. I think there are two things implied here. One is, well, if all politicians lie all the time, then you can't blame a politician for lying because, you know, like the scorpion says when he kills the frog, it's my nature. Mm. But on the other hand, we see there that somehow lying, if not essential to politics, it does really seem to be ubiquitous. And it seems these days to be way more ubiquitous than it ever was before. And so I wanted to talk about the politics of lying and the political function of lying. Can I just throw in here also that we could just as easily be talking about the business of lying, right? And say the Mm. same thing about how corporations work. I mean, economic thinking, corporate thinking is all the way down prudential, yeah, right? It's all the way down consequentialist. And so in the same way that we might say it's in the politician's nature to lie, 
we could say it's their job, right? Like it's part of doing their job. I mentioned Hannah Arendt earlier in her discussion of lying in politics in particular, she does point to Madison Avenue and says, you know, like if lying is central to politics, Madison Avenue is the best practice of politics. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. I think also though, we're starting to see, or maybe we've seen all along the ways in which the lying that businesses do are also at the same time political. So I think about the information that's coming out now that fossil fuel companies knew back in the 70s, the effect of burning fossil fuels on climate. They were lying about it. I think that's a political issue as well as a business issue. So some of these could be treated together. Mm -hmm. There are also health issues, right? If you think about, for example, the NFL concussion crisis, Mm. that's a business issue. It's a political issue. It's a health issue. Yeah. Although in some cases, I mean, this has been studied, you know, the merchants of doubt and people have come to this idea, agnotology, the sort of the study of how doubt is manufactured. And one of the things that comes up in some of those studies, like going back to tobacco and so on, is that in some sense, it is an example of lying to tell the truth. They would find the one study that showed people were smoking and living long and healthy lives, and they would just amp that study up, mm-hmm. even though it's like the old four out of five dentists recommend, you find the one outlier and you amplify the outlier and you make it sound like there is a debate, right? This is the model that's been followed with fossil fuels and so on. You find the one or two people and they may not be lying. That's the interesting thing about it. They just may have found some erroneous data or some exceptional cases. There have been histories, geologically speaking, of warming and cooling on this planet. They might be right about that, but wrong about whether or not fossil fuels have an effect on the warming of the planet. It's just a matter of creating doubt. And I think this is an important question about the whole idea about post-truth, because to me, it seems like lying is predicated on the idea of, I know the truth, and I know the falsehood, and I'm disseminating the falsehood. Whereas I think a lot of what gets called post-truth is less about disseminating a falsehood than it is about disseminating a general sense of it's all lies all the way down, right? All politicians lie, right? The sense that nothing is to be trusted, every statement is as valid as any other statement, and it's all, to cite that student again, it's all subjective. (laughs) (laughs) But, But I think you point out two interesting things there, Jason. One is that along with sowing doubt, telling the truth to lie in the way you just laid it out, it makes all of reality up for grabs. Mm -hmm. So that what I'm really doubting is what is reality itself? What is real itself? One of the things that Arendt points out is lying isn't about necessary truths. And as Lee pointed out, if I say in my math exam that three times five is 72, I'm not lying there. I made a mistake. And the reason why I'm not lying is because lying isn't in relation to necessary truths. It's in relation to contingent facts. And I think how this post-truth gets related to lying is that in the moment that I not only doubt whether that is a fact, but I doubt whether there are facts at all. Or I doubt what are the criteria for judging what is a fact or not. Then we're in an interesting situation in which, okay, no one can tell the truth, but that means no one is lying. And I think the thing that worries me the most about this is that it pushes us back to affect as the arbiter of all things. Like this feels true to me or this doesn't Mm. feel true to me. And that is fundamentally apolitical. I mean, when we listen to that guy that says everything is ultimately subjective, that is a solipsist, right? I mean, that is a person who says, my world is my world and your world is your world and Mary the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. Or if they do, let's hope we both agree already. <laughs> right. right. I mean, the problem with the everything subjective claim is yourself making a claim which you don't hold the rule valid. The claim everything is subjective becomes one more subjective opinion. And the same thing I think happens with the all politicians lie that in some sense there becomes a moment where some people have said this is part of the appeal of Trump, that people like him because he's honest about lying, right? That he doesn't claim to ever really tell the truth, and that weirdly makes him seem credible in some strange way. The subjectivist is not obviated of the moral force of truth. 
I mean, find me a subjectivist who does not get mad when he feels lied to or she feels lied to, right? I mean, that's the thing that you never hear someone say of someone else who they believe is lying to them, well, everything's subjective. You only hear that as a justification of one's own life, right? Or one's own opinion or whatever. So I do think that this often gets lost in the focus on the truth or falsity of lying is none of us want to be deceived. And we all presume a moral right to not be deceived. Everyone feels like they have to justify their own lies and not justify anyone else's. Mm -hmm. We have this moral impulse to justify in favor of what ought to be. And Mm -hmm. no one justifies other people's lies. You know, the fact that we feel like we have to justify our own lies, whether that's in consequentialist ways or by appeal to other people's feelings or some greater good or prudential reasons or whatever, the fact that we feel like those lies have to be justified is evidence of our moral obligation to the truth. Right. You know, I think one way to sum up Kant in a simple way is that ethical wrong is often making yourself an exception to a rule that you generally hold to be valid. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Lee, I want to maybe, I'm not sure, push back on something you said earlier, because I'm now recognizing one of the consequences of something Jason said way back at the beginning of our conversation today. You said something like, if something's about affects, that's not political. My position would be that I think politics works almost exclusively, unfortunately, on affects. If it turns out that my claims about what I know, what is real, if I'm making those claims based on how things affect me, and I think Spinoza's point, but I don't want to get bogged down in Spinoza interpretation, is that we all do this, right? Mm -hmm. All of us judge reality based on how it affects me. That is what I take to be real. And I think that in a moment where I think we are now— in which we have what one might call different affective worlds, we do have different realities, and maybe none of us are subjectivists, or we are, we just don't know it. We're not making the subjectivist claim. But what we are claiming is your reality is not mine because it affects you different than it affects me. And so the conjunction of affect and politics, and then if I take the Spinozist route of seeing the relationship between affects and knowledge, because Spinoza does call it knowledge, then I think we can have a situation in which we're now living in different realities, and therefore what I think is someone lying is actually them telling the truth, and they think I'm lying, but I think I'm telling the truth. This is the danger that we're in right now. Lying doesn't matter, truth-telling doesn't matter, because reality is up for grabs. What I was trying to say earlier was that when we get to the point where our entire understanding of truth and reality is, as you said, this is my reality and this is my truth and that is your reality and your truth and they're different, Mm. that is apolitical. Where politics happens is when I say you're wrong or like let's argue Mm. about this or whatever. Mm. That's where politics happens is Mm. the being with one another, being together with one another. As long as we stay in these strange individualist bubbles where we each have our own affective understanding of reality or truth or anything else – then, yeah, I think that that's not politics. I do want to be clear, though, I agree with both you and Jason, that obviously a lot of politics happens through our affective relations, but they Mm. have to be relations. Mm. Right. I see your point. I agree with you 100% or wholeheartedly. (laughs) But I think this is one reason why you have, and we have one of them here on the podcast, you have a bunch of Marxist spinozists because of this relation between the ways of knowing reality and the politics that emerges from that. Including, by the way, the very possibility of having relations with one another. Because now I see the importance of your position, Lee, and you're correcting me on it, is that the moment I insist that this is my reality and this is your reality, one thing I am doing is cutting off all possibility of relations between us. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that's why I want to go back to my claim that 
you cannot lie to yourself. Mm. You know, I get it that there are things that we do that we describe as lying to ourselves, but it's not the same as lying to someone else. Lying to someone else is a relation. It's a shared relation and it's a relation that does harm. And mm. I think that's maybe one really important thing about lying that we've kind of, you know, skimmed over and not really looked at, which is what harm does lying do? Why does it do harm? And how is it a harm that is unique to our relations with other people? Mm. I came across this speech that Adrian Rich gave and it's been edited and published as an essay. But in it, there's this passage that I think is really interesting and goes to the heartly of what you're saying. Rich says, the possibilities that exist between two people or among a group of people are a kind of alchemy. They are the most interesting thing in life. The liar is someone who keeps losing sight of these possibilities. Hmm. And so I think what she's pointing out here is we have relations between one another, and what the liar does is makes those relations of harm rather than relations of possibility. Yeah, I agree with that. I am not lying when I say that this has been a fantastic conversation. (laughs) I feel like the scope of it was way broader than I anticipated when I was prepping for today. But I want to go around and see if anybody has any final thoughts because our bartender is not lying when she says she's ready for us to get out of here. So, Jason, got any final thoughts on lying? One final thought I have is it's interesting to think about, as you mentioned, Lee, the kind of work one needs to do to get beyond the immediate way someone might respond to something to actually know something about it. Mm -hmm. I find that to be a very interesting claim and one that has a moral and a political dimension to it because I do feel like the immediacy of a certain kind of, I'm going to decide how something has affected me is the truth of it. You know, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing and what it takes to move beyond this. For me, the conversation has helped sharpen one thing And that is my reason for objecting to Kant's distinction between morality and what is prudential. (laughs) And I think I'm missing a step in my argument that I would like to go back and think more about. I think that this conversation has shown both how interesting this is, but as Jason was pointing out, the breadth of this issue of lying is it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about the morality of our relations with one another, but it's also about our social fabric and the politics of being together and the way in which lying makes that impossible. Yeah. I'll just say that as I've grown older, I believe I've become much more attentive to relationships that require me to lie, relationships Mm. that are built on lies, either lying for the other person or lying to the other person, Mm. jobs that require me to lie. Mm. (laughs) And I think that as I've grown older, it's become much more important to me to refuse those because I'm going to have to live with my own prudential justifications of the lies that I tell. But if I'm involving myself in relationships, in employment, in politics that depend on me forwarding lies that other Mm. people have prudential justifications for forwarding, that's a really poisonous dynamic to be in. And I think it's very important for all of us to be really attentive to that. Yeah, yeah. So let's get back to the truth. And (laughs) the truth is we got to get out of here. So I will catch you guys next week. You can't hide them lying eyes, Lee. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back.